Welcome to Growing Your Financial Advisory Practice Podcast by Sun Projections, episode 17. I'm your host, Pavel Bramensky, and my goal is to interview experts to provide you with insights, strategies, and actionable tactics that you can start applying to grow your financial advisory practice today. For more information, head over to snapprojections.com slash podcast. Now, let's introduce today's featured guest. Today's guest is Jamie List. Jamie is the co-founder of Bearing Capital Partners, which is a wealth management firm serving emerging affluent high net worth clientele. Jamie has spent his career building multidisciplinary team-based financial consulting practice. Jamie has provided investment risk management, employee benefits, and multifamily office guidance to clients in a variety of areas from senior executives, professionals, to family-owned businesses for over 20 years. Jamie's professional accreditations include Certified Financial Planner, Canadian Investment Manager, Fellow of the Canadian Securities Institute, Chartered Life Underwriter, Financial Management Advisor, and Chartered Professional Strategic Wealth. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. Jamie, I'm quite excited to have you on. So let's get this started. So uh, tell me a little bit more about your firm. So what specifically do you do and who do you typically serve? Well, you've covered much of it in the introduction. We typically serve a client base that has accumulated a modest degree of wealth and is looking to grow it, um, preserve it, keep it, um, potentially give it away. Um, we don't serve the ultra high net worth community. Um, we've found that the concept of a family office, which is uh, a group of professionals that help clients deal with problems as they define them on an ongoing basis uh, is the model that we've taken uh, and tried to bring it to a group of individuals that normally aren't offered that type of service. So we will assist in all sorts of different tasks. Uh, the main ones are helping people purchase um, risk management and insurance products, um, invest their funds, their their savings in you know market vehicles, securities, etc. If they need the help, we will advise on their employee benefits and um, also create uh, any number of different types of plans, whether it's financial and retirement planning in the traditional um, sense of the word or a more developed or enhanced uh, state retirement tax plan for you know, just the you know, mother and father or the entire family altogether, as the case may be. Excellent. Thanks for describing this. Okay, so tell, I want to go to the beginning. So how did you go about uh, founding Bearing Capital Partners? What triggered you and really what allowed you to focus on this kind of uh, uh, nice uh, clientele that you're serving right now? So you said not ultra high net worth, but people who have some assets and, and want to grow those assets. How did you uh, go about uh, you know, founding and focusing on that niche? You know, in reality, uh, Bearing Capital Partners is a story about collaboration. My partner, Glenn, uh, with whom I co-founded the firm, um, and a, a third individual, uh, a friend of mine that we still are very friendly with, um, founded Bearing with the idea to bring together our separate knowledges under one roof and work in a collaborative environment where we could uh, enhance how we and how and what we deliver to our clients. Um, nothing ever happens overnight. So over about a two or three year period, um, we honed that to a, a what is a private client offering. My other partner um, was a pure money manager and elected to go and uh, work on the, um, on the investment management side, uh, creating structured products, et cetera. So that's where he's found his, uh, his uh, passion. And Glenn and I really built it from there. So about now 13 years ago, we uh, became what we are now, which is um, the two partners and then our team that's developed, um, collaborating 
with each other's strengths to deliver what we do to our clients. Excellent. Okay, so tell me, uh, so you have two partners right now in the, in, and, and some staff. So how many staff right now in the company? Well, there's two partners, myself and Glenn, and then we have three staff and we have an associate partner um, whose practice is growing you know, from a smaller base that started around four or five years ago. So Excellent. Okay. And in terms of the, the firm, so what is the assets under management right now? And, uh, and also, how do you charge uh, and uh, what, uh, what actually, what do you charge for a fees? What, what, what is the compensation structure? So I'll speak to my practice in terms of assets under management. We're at around 60 million. Um, and the multidisciplinary practice looks a little bit different than, let's say, a traditional wirehouse metric. Um, we don't just focus on asset under management as a gauge of success because we're comfortable working in three or four areas where we can bring our expertise to bear and then, of course, obviously earn um, the revenue that we need to be um, successful uh, as an enterprise. So the fees are dictated really by the industry segment that we're in. Um, the the investment and portfolio management piece that we do uh, is generally based on asset under management, uh, exclusively, and it's generally billed directly to clients. So we have some brokerage accounts where clients have asked us to do um, you know, ticket charges, but where we're providing discretionary management, the fees are uh, based on asset under management. And it's a tiered fee that quite quickly gets under 1%. Excellent. I think the threshold there is a million uh, of assets under management. Wonderful. Excellent. Okay. And then in insurance, um, it is still the case that insurance commissions um, for life and disability, et cetera, are built into the product. So we disclose those, but they are paid based on the transaction. Uh, group benefits is, uh, again, generally integrated into the price that the employer pays. Once again, we sort of walk clients through that. To, and financial planning and hourly engagements are very transparent. Those fees are based on the time that we put in and we bill the clients directly for those uh, services. Wonderful. Okay. So you've, uh, you've been doing this, of course, for, for a while. So it's been you know, 13 years. So you know, there, there is a certain approach you have to serving clients in your niche. So uh, how do you think about it? How do you, think, how do you approach serving your clients and uh, how do you think about it? I think I've always thought about uh, the the challenge, if you will, of maintaining a client as a conversation that you have to maintain over a very long period of time. Um, and why by saying have to, it's not that it's going to be a burden for you, but you've got to be in a situation where you can create an environment that through both good and bad times, you are able to communicate effectively what are ultimately your recommendations to a client um, and be able to exchange ideas with them, which also means listening and getting ideas from your clients, which in many cases we've, we've been able to do. So that conversation, that, that dialogue uh, is paramount. Um, and trying to stay away from behaviors that sacrifice or compromise that conversation, uh, I think is how you can best serve your clients. Excellent. So you, you mentioned developing really and being focused on, on high level of service standards, right? So how do you approach, uh, you know, first, you know, designing and developing this kind of high level of service standard in, in, in your practice? I think that uh, a couple things, um, you know, the, the way you structure your, your business, I guess, from the bottom up is going to dictate kind of how you run your firm. I think if you're based in a upfront 
compensation world, whether it's uh, you know a life insurance advisor who's found success uh, through you know advising and, com- and completing transactions in that world, um, invariably you're going to do what you're paid to do. And so, if you're paid to transact, then you're going to be focused on transactions. And so, staying away from again those behaviors or recommending those products in a way that uh, is more meaningful is is what we've tried to do to keep service high. Uh, when we make insurance recommendations, we put them on a piece of paper and we remind people annually that we've made the recommendation until they move on it. Uh, that's how we deal with that sort of more transactional-based uh, approach. And then the the practice and the business that we run is structured so that um, we... We can spend time answering questions, dealing with problems as they come up, um, and not be focused on acquiring new clients in order to pay for you know uh, next month's rent, so to speak. Rather, we've built a practice based on servicing our clients, keeping those individuals happy. Um, really, the cost of acquisition of a client is fairly high. And so either you can pay yourself immediately by charging some kind of upfront um, commission that you know the industry still allows DSCs so you could do that on the money side I'm not sure how much longer that'll persist uh, insurance obviously has the ability for for some some front-ended compensation so those clients cost money to acquire um, that's a format that you can reward yourself with but it invariably is going to point you in the direction I think of uh, finding a new opportunity to pay yourself for acquiring a client rather than uh, uh, structuring a business to reward the advisor and reward the team for keeping clients. So that's really where we've tried to focus is build practices that are overweight in the services that uh, pay and compensate us to return to our clients over and over again and make sure that they're being taken care of. Excellent. So I really like that approach because uh, really by your developing and, and essentially maintaining a high level of service by looking at, uh, at this from the lens of the compensation, right? You're looking, you're actually structuring uh, the, the business as I understand it by looking, okay, it's not about just this month's, let's say, pay, but it's about this long-term relationship, right? Because the cost of acquisition of a client in the industry is high. And um, actually, is it interesting, you know, over the last, let's say, 40, 13 years, it is, do you think the cost of acquisition of a client is, you know, went, went up or it's pretty much the same uh, across the board or, or, or it decreased? What do you think? It's tough to say. I, I'm, I am, I, uh, and we here are not particularly uh, adept at what we'll call newer forms of marketing. So we don't really use the internet or any tools in that area to acquire clients. I think that's probably a great and inexpensive way to generate a lot of um, leads in the direction you want. We have tried to focus uh, in the same vein as servicing our clients is demonstrating that service to the advisors and associates of potential clients. So whether it's accountants or lawyers or certain other examples to develop referral networks where we've been able to demonstrate uh, not only service, but proficiency on an ongoing basis. That tends to be a great uh, generator of referrals. Um, and uh, and then, you know, that, you know, it's sort of like I think of like a circular uh, uh, graphic. Um, service tends to beget uh, new clients. You get a recommendation and a referral from a client or from a professional that you've been working alongside of for a number of years. And so I think 
that brings down the cost of acquisition for us in that, uh, uh, you know, if you get a referral that you didn't ask for, in theory, that's free. Um, and uh, if it's a warm referral and the setup is uh, valid in the sense of someone said, look, you need this person to deal with this problem. They're the right uh, problem solver for you right now. That's a very seamless entry into a new relationship uh, with a new client that can hopefully be long-term and rewarding for everybody. Of course, warm referrals are just the best way to grow the business. So that's awesome. Okay, excellent. Uh, so, so we talked about the benefits of that approach, really uh, having this high level of service of standards, not being focused on, let's say, next max month or how to monetize the clients uh, you know, this month. Uh, from the client from the client's client's perspective, but I want to talk about the benefits to to the practice overall. So, you know, let's maybe talk about uh, when you look just really look at your practice. What are the benefits of, of having this high level of service uh, standard? So, you know, what are the, for example, you know, we address a little bit of uh, the customer uh, customer acquisition cost, and of course, you know, the lifetime value is going to be higher, right? But what about the client turnover? What about other aspects? Maybe compliance, you know, uh, things some other some other benefits. Are there any other benefits to to you running the the business right now that that you're doing right now? I mean, you've certainly mentioned or touched on a bunch of them. I mean, I I, I think that in general, uh, I mean, there's a lot of there's a there's a high compliance burden on all of us advisors, regardless of your licensing. Um, and in some case, uh, multiple licenses means your compliance burden is higher, or at least has to be more heavily papered. If you're regularly servicing clients, those are easy conversations to have. You don't have to spend time asking questions to provide uh, updated and compliant documentation. It happens organically. Obviously, if clients have objectives that change, uh, that again, you know, you're know, you more aware of it. Uh, you're not caught by surprise. And I think really, at the end of the day, all of that wraps into being able to understand what your client's expectations are. And I think, frankly, disappointed clients if it happens, generally happens because you've misunderstood their objectives, um, or uh, or you've or you've misrepresented what the expectations are at your end, uh, and so communication tends to, to to head that off. So I think that's really those are that's where that's really where service uh, kind of benefits you in your pocketbook, I guess, in that you don't have to spend time and effort, um, you know, getting a client in to have a compliance meeting, you know, once every year or two years, depending on what regime you're in, um, you should have just done that already as a normal course of the conversation that you're having. Very good. Uh, all right, let's move on. So uh, we also mentioned, uh, well, you talked about compensation, of course, and, and what's your orientation, whether you know it, you wanted to go move away from being tr- more transactional to something more long term. Is there any, any, uh, anything else that you want to mention about comp- compensation? No, I mean, you know, I mean that the, the we are doing this or any career to to build um, a lifestyle for ourselves, um, and so the way, you know, the amount of money you choose to make is really up to you in this business. That's what makes it sort of um, interesting to be in. Um, the way you choose to pay yourself, I think, is going to be indicative of what your practice is going to grow into. Um, I, I've. I think it's important to ask two questions of your practice to figure out where you lie, and they're pretty simple. First one is, what percent of your revenue would continue next year if you didn't ask for any new business? Um, and so if your answer is zero uh, or you know, 10%, then you have a problem. 
And that problem is, is that your clients aren't staying with you because or or compensating you or or for what you're what you are going to do for them, which is an expectation in the future. It's a future ability to demonstrate your capacity. It's something you've done in the past. And that practice then becomes built on what have you done for me lately? The second one, which is a bit more nuanced, is uh, I think it's important to ask what percentage of your revenue uh, or or your compensation um, is collected directly by you from your clients? Meaning, does a third party pay you or do you pay directly? In, in reality, technically, we collect almost no money from our clients. I mean, we charge them for financial planning and that is directly from us to them. But even in the money management um, that we do through our dealer, um, so I'm registered through a, a Align Capital Partners, which is the IROC dealer that we do business through. They actually collect the fees in reality and then remit them to us. But I would say that's direct collection. We charge a client management fee based on assets and management. It's straightforward, it's transparent, um, and it's done on an ongoing basis. Uh, whereas I would say the insurance revenues that, collect, that we collect, someone else is paying us to do that business. Um, you know, you can be transparent and disclose away that, but that's it. So again, what amount of money is being paid to you by your clients directly. Um, If that number is high, they're probably happy with your service and with you as an advisor, and they'll continue to um, consume the services you have to offer. And so you take the two together, what percentage will repeat next year? Well, if the answer is 100%, then you've got a really robust practice. And if the answer to the second question is you collect it yourself and you justify the revenue, then that's a healthy business as well. So I've kind of always tried to focus on making sure that in our, whether it's my own practice or whether it's the larger firm's goals, we have as much as possible a revenue that's based on those two questions diversified outside of, you know, what have you done for me lately and someone else is paying me to do work for my clients, which is what I don't want. Excellent. Good questions. Those two questions are very powerful. So, uh, so let's say we have, we have a lot of happy clients, right? And they're paying us directly. So how do you uh, handle the conversation about the, the, or let's say the expansion revenue from you for you from, from one client. So for example, let's say you started with, let's say on the investment side, but maybe there's some other, uh, other objectives clients have. And you know, how do you handle those kind of conversations when there, maybe there are some other opportunities or other, other problems that you can help solve for clients? Uh, and uh, do you do this all up front or do you uh, have a process that basically goes, let's say, you know, over a number of months or maybe even years that you have those conversations with clients? Part of having a multidisciplinary practice is being okay at everything. And the reason you are okay at it is you have to be able to spot opportunities and be able to start conversations. And if you're the lead advisor with a client, it needs to be you that brings the opportunity, problem, whatever you want to call it, to the client's attention. If and when that has been crystallized, then either you work it can happen any number of ways. And, and by the way, it depends really on the client's um, expectations, objectives, temperament. Sometimes it happens behind the scenes. Sometimes you work with your internal team um, to develop a solution. Sometimes you have to bring in, uh, you know, obviously we're not lawyers and accountants, so we don't uh, write tax returns or legal documents. But uh, again, you can work very closely to um, get that stuff done for people or you can be a you know a distant if you will uh, observer to the process it just depends on on how it happens so 
the, the, the team advisory concept is one that is really more driven by the client's needs and expectations than it is by any formal pattern. Um, really, the team allows you to deliver uh, a comprehensive outcome and, to your client in a variety of areas. And ultimately, again, back to the whole point of being in this business, the more smart solutions you can deliver in the more areas for a client, um, honestly and capably, um, the more robust your practice will be and the less likely a client is, frankly, to seek um, another advisor elsewhere. Very good. So I'm going to ask you, because I'm, I'm, I'm really interested, especially in the financial planning aspect. So how do you weave the financial planning into, into your process? Do you start with financial planning as some advisors, this kind of heavy process of, of finding, of finding the uh, understanding client, of course, and there's some, there's some compliance that goes with that, of, of course, as well, right? But do you spend a, you know, a lot of time in financial planning uh, uh, upfront or, or do you, again, kind of spread it over the relationship and, uh, and spot some of the challenges that, uh, that uh, potentially uh, clients need to address and, and help them uh, address them as they come up? I, uh, so I was recruited at a university and went to London Life and trained with Freedom 55. And that training, and particularly the insurance industry, you know, the, every industry has its pros and cons, but the insurance industry is excellent at looking at time in 40-year chunks. And the investment industry is good at looking at time in four-month chunks. And so it is the case that in most situations with a client, the thing that you end up speaking to them the most about is their money and their investments. And that becomes a very uh, short, timelined conversation uh, if you're not careful. And so the real uh, benefit to financial planning is right out of the gate, almost every single engagement we do, um, we are writing some form of financial plan. Um, if nothing else, as an analysis to establish a kind of a timeline of what we need to do and why we need to do it. You know, that old expression, you know, if, if you have no uh, goal in mind, any path will do. I think I messed that one up, but it's something along those lines. I know so, that one, yeah. Yeah, so um, if you start a recommendation about how someone should implement any financial strategy and you haven't got an idea of what their financial horizon looks like, you're... you're you're probably not serving them as best as you could. So goals-based planning is really where the insurance industry wins. Uh, it's, it's kudos, certainly for me and I think from everybody, because they look way, way down the road um, and say, this is where things will be at the end of your life. And I think you should work back from there on that timeline. And whether you're talking to a 30-year-old who frankly has no way of at the end of the day, they have no way of really rationalizing what the next 35 years of their career and 25 years of their retirement looks like. But you need to begin that that conversation with them. And it's a whole lot easier when someone's 60 and they've done the earning and the spending that they're going to do. And they have a very defined timeline as they roll over into a, you know, a capital depletion, well, potentially capital depletion, it's really spending stage. Um, all of those should be predicated on a pretty simple, I mean, a, a financial planning software is an annuity calculation and understanding income and outflows. And that needs to be done before you can make any recommendation anywhere. And then that financial plan becomes the, the asset test uh, against which you measure lots of your decisions. Um, if a client's net worth isn't increasing, then you're not doing your job. Uh, or potentially they're not. <laughs> 
as the case may be, they may be in a situation where they're spending more than they're earning. But ultimately, if, if all things being equal, at the end of the day, a, a client's net worth should be increasing um, by uh, an amount that they think is appropriate, and everyone will define that differently. Right. So, so uh, there is an element I sense here about keeping clients accountable, right? Because you know they, we may have a great plan, a great financial plan put together for clients, uh, but we still have to implement it. So, how do you keep clients accountable, and uh, how do you keep them on track? I mean, what uh, what's your what's your secret when it comes to that? <laughs> I don't know if it's about accountability as much as it is. I I think clients in general, need something as a, as a ruler, uh, as a line of best fit. Um, this is where we're going. And if they start to think in terms of planning, then the decisions that they make are deviations from that plan. And it's their money, so they're allowed to do that whenever they want to. So the plan isn't set in stone, and it's not right or wrong. It's just simply, this is what you told me the last time we got together, and this is what happens if we make a series of reasonable assumptions about the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And so it's not so much about holding them accountable as it is about giving them a tool to compare and contrast what the different outcomes are. Um, you know, we are all well trained in how financial planning works, but um, you know, as I think it's the former Federal Reserve Chair in the States, Greenspan, made the comment once that the most complicated math that most people will do in their lives is trying to understand their retirement. Lots of people don't have a way of understanding the, those decisions or putting them in, in, in any kind of context. And financial planning and, the, and all of the, the related sort of tools that are available, um, put those into digestible uh, chunks, pictures, graphs, you know, anecdotes, whatever you want to call it. It gives you an opportunity to set up uh, a, a path towards sort of what people have dictated to you. They they think success looks like. Excellent. So I'm, I'm glad you talked uh, so much about planning and your approach uh, uh, to that and, and starting really the, with, a, with a plan first. Okay, so um, when you're looking back the last 13 years, and what have been some of your biggest challenges or, or some of, what are some of the biggest challenges that you have right now in front of you? It's always a challenge to find new clients. And the reason that that's the case is that, uh, you know, even people who are very happy with your services I mean, I think generally people who are happy are complacent about that. And the complacency isn't the kind of thing that, that you talk about at a cocktail party. I think cocktail party conversations where uh, things come up are, oh, you know, so-and-so recommended me this and it doubled in, you know, I purchased a bunch of cannabis stocks a year ago and they've tripled in value. So those are great stories. Um, they're quick and digestible and they trigger obviously more conversations. It's really not um, so much, you know, coffee table conversation to say, well, I'm pretty happy with my financial plan and I'm right on track. So I think that, uh, you know, it's always been a challenge to arm our clients with the tools to refer us. That's the challenge is sort of help them, uh, you know, uh, do that. And sometimes, frankly, it's just as you, you have to remember that the, the, business of uh, financial advisory, once you've done all of the things you're supposed to do for your clients, is still growing by acquiring new people to do business with. Um, and that means uh, generally every once in a while, you got to go, okay, for the next quarter, I'm going to make sure that I do all the things that I learned way back when I was 22 years old and, and ask people if there's anybody that they 
you know, think we could be working with and prompt them and so on and so forth. So I think really it is, you know, uh, focusing on the business of your practice. Uh, and let's just say that the service model obviously speaks very much towards keeping people happy, but deals less with the transactional and business building nature of, of what we do. And I think just rejuvenating your thinking process on that every once in a while is, is the challenge. Excellent. Very, very well. All right. So let's flip that question. So the, another thing that I want to ask you, like, what are you excited about right now? When you look at your business right now, what are you most excited you know, uh, right now? What am I most excited about? I, I think we're in a good spot. I think that, um, uh, that we've got a good team. We are in the process of, of um, slowly but surely trying to grow the number of team members we have. And I'm sort of excited about, um, I shouldn't say sort of, I am excited about doing that. We haven't identified all those folks. And uh, I think... Who are you looking for right now? I'm just, uh, just curious. Really, there's two different types of people that would kind of be welcome, um, so to speak. One of which would be uh, an individual that does the exact same thing that we already do. Uh, because, uh, again, everybody's approach is slightly different. Um, and so, you know, an advisor who has obviously multidisciplinary practice would be someone we'd be welcome in. But generally, I think what we'll end up really finding is someone who has a, uh, a single focus and uh, sees the value in developing the other potential uh, advisory outlets and revenue sources that, that, that we've been able to, to, to become comfortable doing. Um, and then, of course, if they have an appetite for learning, maybe some of it they, they take over on their own. So it just it depends on where that is. So there's those individuals with developed practices, let's say. And there's a couple of, uh, of spots, if you will, for people who are, you know, three to five years in the industry who have built a practice and aren't either happy with or haven't quite found a place to fit in what is generally a fairly sales and transactional time of their career. Um, I was lucky enough to kind of be able to find my way through the first five of years of my career without having to I had a salary. That's a better way of saying it for a while after I left London Life. And so that allowed me some comfort to really stretch my uh, education. Um, and so I was lucky enough to be in that spot. So the first, you know, two to five years, you know, first two years is, is make or break. Once you've built a small practice, then you start to learn what you do and don't like. And I think the people who don't like a sales focused environment would be the kind of people who would, would really uh, flourish in, in what we're doing. Excellent. Yes, and we did uh, a lot of conversations about how the industry is changing right now, how we're just going sort of away from the sales culture, right? But uh, I know we have a lot of younger advisors uh, listening to the podcast as well. So, you know, here's an opportunity, right? So if somebody is looking for something like that, that's, uh, you know, yeah, contact Jamie uh, right away. Okay, so um, now before we wrap up, a couple of other questions here. So uh, when you look back at your career, what do you think? Uh, I don't know if you can isolate this to one thing, but let's say if you have to isolate this one to one thing, what made you successful uh, in, in your career and in building your practice? I think uh, a mix of sort of um, curiosity and humility. I have taken, and this suits me, and this works for me. It doesn't work for everybody, but it works for me. I've taken the approach that uh, knowledge is uh, certainly power. And, um, you know, becoming well accredited and, um, and well licensed and all that stuff to be able to deliver is, is, is important. 
And so that, that uh, curiosity has been there. And then a mix of humility and always helps to admit when you don't know what you're doing. Uh, or you aren't capable of doing what you need to do on your own and being able to reach out to uh, as many people as possible to finish off uh, what you need to get done um, from right from the top to bottom. And that could be you know, in, any, in any situation. You know, I don't think Wayne Gretzky ever for a moment thought he was the best hockey player in the world, but he was when he was. And I think that's probably the secret to being excellent at what you do is to have a healthy dose of, of humility and doubt. And those are the attributes that drive you to be better um, rather than, you know, certainly confidence matters, but in your development and growth, um, you know, confidence can be just as, uh, as detrimental as it can um, positive. These are wise words. Uh, curiosity and humility, great combination. Okay, Jamie, this podcast is all about growing your financial advisor practice. So uh, again, I'll ask you for advice. So do you have any parting words of wisdom for the listeners? <laughs> you know, I, the, the, no, I, this business is a numbers game. Um, and the parting words of wisdom is you'll probably be best at doing what you're comfortable doing. So if you are excellent at um, transactions, be excellent at transactions. I have chosen not to do that. It doesn't mean it's not an option. But recognize that that's what your practice is about and be clear and transparent and straightforward. And, you know, I'm here to provide you an insurance solution. And that insurance solution, once we've implemented it, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Client, is something we may not need to revisit for a year or two. I'll be in touch every six months. And other than that, you know, um, I'm sure there's some language that I'm missing. But that's a very honest and straightforward approach. I think that people try to dress up the things that they do uh, more than they should uh, in some cases. And so uh, you can be a very capable and successful technician um, and deliver one solution. I can think of a number of advisors just right now who I know that have specialized in knowing one product or one strategy, and they are called upon to deliver those solutions. Um, that's a great way of running a business if you're comfortable doing that. I, in particular, am not, wouldn't be. Uh, I've chosen a different way, which is to um, help people explore an entire solution set and then start trying to chip away at kind of implementing the things that they need to be successful. But I think if you're honest with your intentions, if you're honest with what really drives you and excites you, and if you're honest and you can say, you know, uh, I'm going to be good at what I want to be good at, then I think that's the, that's the way to do this business well. And then if you just go back to the drawing board every once in a while and remember that you won't ever get a new client unless you ask for it, um, you know, the more times you do that, probably the more successful you'll be. These are great words uh, of wisdom, Jamie. Thank you. Uh, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, how would they do that? What's the best way to reach you? We have a website, uh, www.bearingcapital.ca, um, B-E-A-R-I-N-G-C-A-P-I-T-A-L.ca. Um, it's all of our contact information is on there. It's probably the easiest way of doing that, uh, of getting in touch, I should say, with me would be through that site. Uh, we recently upgraded it, so it's uh, something we're relatively happy with. Um, and yeah, that's how I would get in touch. Wonderful. So that we'll link this uh, site in the, in the show notes so everybody will be able to uh, get a hold, a hold of you then. Uh, Jamie, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed this. 
And that's it for this episode. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at podcast at snapprojections.com. And if you're enjoying the show and want more of the amazing guests sharing incredibly valuable knowledge, head over to iTunes and leave us a great review, which helps us get discovered. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.